Chapter 12 of Serapion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Der Fragwürdige. Serapion by Francis Stevens. Chapter 12. The Scarlet Horror. You will have to go, Barber, said Moore heavily. I am sorry, but there are occasions when Alicia must be humored. This seems to be one of them. Unfortunate, very unfortunate. Perhaps another time. He paused and glanced suggestively toward the door. All the while that they had argued and quarreled over me, I had sat as apparently passive as the lay figure to which I had once compared Alicia. It was, however, the passivity not of inertia, but of high-keyed endurance. What Alicia felt I don't know. If it was anything like the strain I suffered under, I can't wonder that she wished to be rid of me. Another time, said Moore, and looked toward the door. I rose. Instantly Beckwest was beside me. He took my arm, tried to draw me away, out of the room. I shook him off. When I moved, it was toward Alicia. Before either Moore or Niels realized my objective, I was halfway around the table. Alicia, her eyes still closed, moaned softly. She cried out and thrust forth her hands in a resisting motion. Stop! That was Moore's voice, but it was not for his sharp command that I halted. There was, it was as if a wall had risen between Alicia and me, or as if her outstretched hands were against my chest holding me back. Yet there was a space of at least two yards between us. What do you want, Barber? demanded Moore roughly. I said you would have to go. I wish, I forced out, to make her undo what she has done to me. Then I was right, cried Berkowitz indignantly. I stood still, swept by wave upon wave of the force that willed to absorb me. The past weeks had trained me for such a struggle. Though the face of the fifth presence remained invisible, its identity with the intangible power I fought was clear enough to me, and I hated the face. I repulsed the enveloping consciousness of it as one strives to fling off a loathsome caress. While I stood there, blind, silent, at war, Beckwith continued. Now I know that I was right. Jimmy, you have let this boy suffer in some way that I neither understand nor wish wholly to understand. But believe me, you'll answer for it. Clay, lad, come away. You are courting disaster here. Alicia can't help you. She is a poor slave and tool for any force that would use her. Why, the very atmosphere of this house is contagious, psychic. Many people are immune. Moore is immune. But I tell you, there has been more than one time when I have resolutely shut my senses against the influence, or Alicia would have dragged me into her own field of abnormal and accursed perceptiveness. It's because I resist that they won't have me at a seance. Come away. No, they could not guess, of course, that I spoke from out a swimming darkness slashed with streaks of scarlet. No, I muttered again. This woman here, she can help me. She shall help me. Moore, I'll... I'll wring your neck if you don't make her help me. Through the swimming, scarlet-slashed gloom, I drove forward another step. Came a rush of motion. There was a vast, muffled sound as of beating wings. 
a trumpet-like voice cried out loudly. I'll settle with you once for all, it shouted, and then something had thrust in between Alicia and me. Instantly the gloom lifted. There at my right hand was the large table, with the shaded lamp and the books and papers strewn over it. To my left the massive empty chair in which Alicia was wont to be imprisoned during a seance. Beyond that hung the straight black folds of the curtains which concealed the cabinet. Though I turned my head to neither side, I saw all these things as though looking directly at them, and also with even more unusual distinctness I saw what was straight ahead of me. Between me and Alicia the figure of a man had sprung into sudden existence. In no way did this figure suggest the ghostly form one might expect from what is called materialization. The man was real, solid. He was of stocky but not very powerful build. He was dressed in grey. His face, ah, only once before had I seen this man's face with open gaze. But many times it had haunted my closed lids. Smooth, boyish, pleasant, with smiling lips and clear light blue eyes, my own eyes, save that the amused gleam in them did not express a boy's unsophisticated humor. Not a bodiless face this time afloat in mid-air or lurking behind my lids. This was the man himself, the whole solid flesh-and-blood man. I could not doubt that he was real. His hand caught my arm, roughly, for all that amiable gentleness the face expressed. I felt the clutching fingers tight and heavy. He clutched and at the same time smiled, sweetly, amusedly. Clutched and smiled. Serapion, I whispered, and Serapion. His smile grew a trifle brighter, his clutch tightened, but I was no longer afraid of him. The very strain I had been under flung me suddenly to a height of exalted courage. Instinctive loathing climaxed in rebellion. He clasped my left arm tight. My right was free. I had no weapon, but caught up from the table a thing that served as one. And even as I did it, that clear sight vision I have referred to beheld a singular happening. As my head grew hot with a rush of exultant blood, something came flying out through the curtains of the cabinet. It was bright scarlet in color and about the size of a pigeon or small hawk. I am not sure that it had the shape of a bird. The size and the peculiarly brilliant scarlet of it are all I am sure of. This red thing flashed out of the cabinet, darted across the room, passing chest-high through the narrow space between the suddenly embodied fifth presence and myself, and vanished. I heard Alicia crying, Bad! Bad! It has come! And then, in all the young strength of my right arm, I struck at the fifth presence. My aim was the face I hated. The weapon, a queer enough one, but efficient, sank deep, deep, buried half its length in one of those smiling light blue eyes. He let go my arm and dashed his hand to his face. The weapon remained in the wound. From around it, even before my victim fell, blood gushed out, scarlet, scarlet. Below the edge of his clutching hand that would clutch me no more, I could see his mouth, and, God help me, the lips of it smiled still. 
Then he had writhed and crumpled down in a loose grey heap at my feet. Barber, for God's sake! The man I struck had sunk without a sound. That hoarse, harsh shout came from Niels. Next instant, his powerful arm sent me spinning half across the room. I didn't care. He dropped to his knees. When he tried to straighten the grey heap, his hands were instantly bright with a grim color that had been the flying scarlet things. But I didn't care. I had killed him. It. The fifth presence had dared embody itself in flesh, and I had slain it. Niels had the body straight now, face uppermost. The light of the lamp beat down. Creeping tiptoe, I came to peer over Niels's shoulder. The lips, did they still smile? Then. But there is an extremity of feeling with which words are inadequate to deal. Leave my emotions and let me state bare facts. The grey suit in which I had seen the fifth presence clothed was the same faintly checked light suit I had wondered at Moore's wearing in November. And the face there in the lamplight, contorted, ashen, blood-smeared, was the face of James Barton Moore. End of chapter 12 Recording by Der Fragwürdige